We're going to be reading Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. And as we've been going through Matthew's gospel, we are, uh, we're now in a section where it's a, uh, an interlude, a short uh, section on discipleship, one of two in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. But we've been looking at all these miracles in the last few weeks, and today we will see Jesus speaking to two men about following him. Matthew 8, and beginning at verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Lord God, we thank you for your word today and we thank you for the privilege of reading it just now. We we acknowledge that that was the only perfect part of this worship service. When your word, which is perfect, is being read. Thank you, Lord, that you want to speak to us. Thank you that you have spoken. And thank you, Lord, that you want to do a great work in each one of our hearts. Thank you, Lord, that it's no mistake that we are all here today, gathered together in this place. Thank you, Lord, that you are faithful. And we pray, Lord, that you would once again open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your word. We pray, Lord, that you would show us what you want us to see. Make us the people you want us to be. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So we are looking at this section on discipleship today. And what we see in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 18 is that Jesus is approached by two would-be followers. One makes a statement, the other a request. And whether they were sincere or not, only God knows, but they were both wrong. One states his intentions to follow Jesus anywhere. The other asks for an exemption for permission to not follow Jesus. And Christ's response to them is nothing short of amazing. You see Jesus deny both requests. And in so doing, he sets the bar for what it really means to follow him. This is the first of two teachings in Matthew chapters 8 and 9 on what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. What it really means to be a disciple of Christ. You could call it how not to follow Jesus. How not to follow because we are being shown what it means to follow by first seeing what it doesn't mean. Much like how Jesus taught on giving and prayer in Matthew chapter 6 by first saying what not to do when you give and when you pray. What is clear in the text today is that following Jesus is not a casual matter. It is something of utmost importance that deserves and requires our utmost for Christ. Jonathan Edwards put it this way in words that we're not familiar with. Resolved never henceforward till I die to act as if I were in any way my own, but entirely and altogether God's. See, following is something you do because God empowers you to do it. Following is only by God's grace, based solely on His truth, enabled exclusively by and resting upon His sovereignty and faithfulness. But we need to be willing to cooperate with God. You've you've heard it again and again in the last several months that God calls us to cooperate with what He is doing and what He wants to do in us and through us. We need to be willing to cooperate with God. God expects our cooperation. 
Now notice first in verse 18, and this happens every time Jesus is around, people were attracted to Jesus. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, that's what happens anytime Jesus is around. A crowd gathers. People were attracted to Jesus. It was a big crowd. A big crowd. There were would-be followers in that crowd. Some were curious. Some were pretenders. Some were fakers. Some selfishly wanted whatever they could get to get them through that day. And some resolved to follow Jesus. Some were sincere. Some were humble. Jesus sees the crowds and he decides to go to the other side. The other side of what? The other side of the Sea of Galilee. But before he gets into the boat, two men come up and engage him. Two men come up and speak to him. One has a statement, the other has a question. Now next week we're going to see Jesus in that boat. We're going to see the wind and the waves, and it's a familiar story, but we're going we're to look at that next week. But before they got in the boat, these two men come up and engage him. And in verse 19, we see that the first man who approached Jesus that day was a scribe. A scribe. In those days, the skills of reading and writing were highly valued, as they are today. But only a few uh, worked with writing materials, and even fewer had access to books or scriptures in that day. The Jews had a high percentage of people that were literate. They could read and they could write. But only few could regularly work with those written materials. And even fewer had access to reading those books or those scriptures. So a scribe was very important in those days. He, he became a Bible teacher. He was not merely someone who copied and wrote things down, but he was asked to interpret what he read as well. He was very important in those days. He was a Bible teacher. He was an expert. He was, he was a pro at handling Hebrew documents. Not just someone who read and copied, but someone who taught, someone who interpreted, someone who applied the law. That's why the NIV says it was a teacher of the law that came up to Jesus. Now, this scribe says to Jesus, teacher. Now, it's, if, you think that's, if you think that's not so important, it's pretty much a miracle. We're in a, a chapter that's talking about all these miracles of healing that Jesus did. That This was a miracle that a scribe would even call Jesus by that title, teacher. He says, teacher, I will follow you anywhere. No matter where you go, I'm there. I'm in. He had seen what Jesus had been doing, the miracles of healing. Most likely, he had heard him preach the Sermon on the Mount. But he is saying one thing, but he was not fully on board with the kind of master-disciple relationship common in those days and what Jesus would have meant when he says, follow me. How do we know that? We know that because of Jesus' response to him. But let's think for a moment about the kind of master-discipleship relationship that was implied in those days when you think of following. We think of following and we think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to follow at a distance. I'm not going to make myself known. I'm just going to be following at a distance. Or some others would think, no, I'm right there behind you. I'm right with you. I'm going where you go. But we, we think of following as somewhat of a casual, uh, a choice we make whether we do it or not. And we might be engaged partly and sometimes fully engaged, but it's just more of a casual thing. Not the way it was in those days. Here's how it would happen. A person would check out all the local teachers, all the local masters, and pick one that they liked, that they admired, that they respected, they wanted to learn from. And they would go to that teacher and they would ask permission to be their disciple. Now, if he was accepted, he would then com completely commit to this master, to this teacher, that where they went, they would go. They, they learned from each other. They, they basically lived with one another. To be a Jew, becoming a disciple in those days was all-consuming. It was an all-consuming occupation of life. Your life revolved around your teacher. Doug Greenwald put it this way, if a rabbi agreed to a would-be disciple's request and allowed him to become his disciple, 
The disciple to be agreed to totally submit to the rabbi's authorities, authority in all areas of interpreting the scriptures for his life. This was a cultural given, something each truly wanted to do. And as a result, each disciple came to the rabbinic relationship with a desire and a willingness to do just that. Surrender to the authority of God's word as interpreted by his rabbi's view of scripture. That is not what this scribe was stating to Jesus. We know by Jesus' response. But if he was going to follow Jesus anywhere, that meant that he would agree to Jesus' interpretation of Scripture, including his interpretation in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard, but I say to you, where Jesus fully interpreted the Scripture, showed the fuller interpretation of God's Word, but this scribe was not there. What he was was overly eager. What he was was quick to promise something that he didn't count the cost about. He didn't really know the full ramifications of what he was saying. We know by verse 20, in answer to him, Jesus says something that seems so disconnected at first glance. Jesus talks of foxes and birds. He talks of holes and nests. He talks of the homes that these animals live in. And it seems so disconnected at first glance, but it is really uh, focused upon this man's statement of intention that really wasn't. Jesus uses two everyday illustrations to make the point that he, the maker of the world, God in the flesh, did not have a pillow to call his own. Did not have a home the one who made the place didn't have a place. You never hear of Jesus going home. He didn't have one. So often he would spend the night outside under the stars. And he uses this example. He says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What was Jesus getting at? What was he saying? Well, in effect, to this would-be follower, this, this scribe, he says this, he goes, you really want to go where I'm going? You really want to follow me? You think it's going to be all these healings and popularity? Soon enough, the crowd's admiration will become cursing and persecution. If you come to me, you will have no comfort, no place to call home, because my mission isn't to settle down. See, Jesus did not come to make a comfortable place for himself. The scripture is very clear. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came so that his sheep might have life and might have an eternal home with him someday in heaven. He calls himself, by the way, the Son of Man. Son of Man. It's a favorite name of Jesus for himself. His his favorite nickname for himself. You, you probably have a favorite name you like to call yourself. Uh, Jesus's was Son of Man. And, and I, over the years, I have, I have uh, not understood this term very well. I, 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 I uh, track much more closely with Son of God and, and Lord. But every time I read Son of Man, I, I just, I don't, I don't get it. But it's a favorite name of Jesus for himself. The, the title, Son of Man, shows his true identity and purpose. It shows his humiliation. It shows his condescension in becoming man, in coming down to earth, God in the flesh, identifying with man for a time so that man might identify with him forever. The Sermon on the Mount signifies that he is the humble servant who came to save sinners. The term son of man signifies that he is the suffering servant who atoned for sin and came back to life. Son of man signifies that he will be the returning king, the returning judge who will reign over God's kingdom on earth. This is the first time this title is used in the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospels, it is used over 80 times. 
And Jesus is the only one who uses this term, except for one exception in Acts chapter 7 and verse 56. Matthew records Jesus using this title 30 times, primarily as the future judge. What is Jesus doing when he's calling himself the Son of Man? It's direct, directly related to his response to this scribe. Jesus is highlighting his relation to the world. Unlike other titles such as Son of God, which showed his relation to God as God himself, and Lord, which shows his relation to believers, the, the Son of Man Jesus said, doesn't have a home on earth. His permanent home is in heaven. His followers must think the same way. It's like the old song goes, uh, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. Our citizenship, Philippians 3 says, is in heaven, from which we eagerly await a Savior Christ Jesus. Hebrews 13, 14 says that we, here we have no lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. So this first would-be follower comes up to Jesus and makes a statement of intention that Jesus knew he didn't mean. And his answer shows it. He was not willing, or he had not counted the cost of following Christ. He had not realized that Jesus was not just going to be doing healings all the time and being popular all the time, but there would be a cross in his future. We see in verse 21 that another would-be disciple came up to Jesus and says to him, Lord, I first need to go bury my father. And then I will follow you. Sounds like a good question. Sounds like a good, a good thing to do. Jesus would never tell him to, to not follow the fifth command of honoring your father and your mother. It was a responsibility in, in those days as it is today. So it sounds pretty good. Sounds like he really cares for his family, doesn't it? But what he is really saying is this. Jesus, Lord, interesting that he calls him Lord and then doesn't want to do what he says. Here's what he's really saying. I won't follow you, Jesus, until my parents die and I get my inheritance. I need my money. I've been counting on it. If I go with you, I might miss out. I will follow you when my inheritance is settled. Now, he's not saying that he is, needs to go to a funeral right that moment, by the way. Most likely, he either wants to wait until his father dies one day, could be 20 or 30 years down the road, and then the inheritance would be his. Or, if his father had died, he would wait for a year until after his father died, and then the inheritance would be his. He would take care of his uh, family responsibilities. And Jesus' response is culturally shocking. Probably even more so than his response to the first man. See, to him, Jesus says, follow me. He's giving a command, actually. And then he says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Well, that sounds insensitive doesn't it that sounds like Jesus doesn't care about his parents we know that's not true Jesus says follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead literally let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead Augustine said it this way when unbelievers bury dead people it is the spiritually dead burying the physically dead. Futile. Hopeless for them. They need the hope that only Jesus gives. Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Saying, you don't want to follow? You don't want to follow? You want to call the shots. 
And I'm telling you, follow me. He was calling him to repentance and faith. In these verses today, in Matthew 8, 18 through 22, here is the one with unquestioned power and authority. We've seen it as he heals a leper, a classic outcast. He heals Peter's mother-in-law, a woman with not much standing in those days, sadly. He heals a centurion servant who's lower than dirt, raises him up at a distance, healing from a distance. You see, Jesus healing people that are demon-possessed. All the sick that were brought to him, he heals them. And then you see this one with unparalleled, unquestioned power and authority being approached by two would-be followers. By the way, whose souls were in danger. You know, the first is basically saying, hey, if, if this is what it's like, he's looking around at all the healings, all the gathered crowds, all the popularity. If this is what it's like, I'm in. I'm there. I'm with you. Well, healings, wow, I'll do that. I'll be popular too. And people are going to seek us out. It's going to be awesome, Jesus. But it would lead to a cross, not comfort. And Jesus is, is pinpointing the fact that this man was more concerned with comfort than he was following Jesus. The second man said, hmm, he's looking around. If this is what it's like, I'm out for now. (laughs) Not yet. Little did he know that his decision not to follow would even be more costly. It could cost him his soul if he stayed in that state. So what are we we to make of these two encounters, these these two uh, vignettes where these men come up to Jesus and one states intentions, the other asks a question. Both are wrong. Jesus denies both. What is he getting at? What are the the implications for us? What Jesus does in these answers is he first spells out the cost of following him. And then he he shows the the rules, the, the guidelines for following him. And in those two answers, we see the evidence of what it means to follow Jesus and and some deep implications for our lives. But first, the cost. What does it cost? We always want to know that, right? Well, what does it cost? You know, I want that, but what will it cost me? It doesn't matter what it is. You might be buying something or just committing to something, but you want to know, tell me what the expectation is so I can can weigh that and see if I, I want to make that investment, right? So what is the cost of following Jesus. It's a question that if, if you've never uh, contemplated it, you, you must. You don't want to be like the first man who never did, who didn't do that well, before he, he made the statement. What's the cost of following Jesus? Well, the cost of following Jesus is very simple, and it's really easy to remember. There's not a big, long list, okay? It's very simple. It will cost you everything it will cost you your life that's it that's the cost so now we know it's clear Jesus doesn't want us to be like that first man who was so quick to to promise but was not fully aware of the cost see the son of man had no home his work would keep him on the move and if he followed if this man followed, it would keep his earth, as an earthly follower, it would keep him on the move as well. But many people, so easy to see this, many people mistakenly think that Jesus exists solely for their needs. It's all about me. All about me and Jesus. What Jesus can do for me. But Jesus made it consistently clear that following him cost Everything. Everything. The pearl of great price. Buying the field. Denying yourself. And it makes perfect sense. Because it cost Jesus his life to enable us to be able to follow. It will cost you your comfort. It will cost you your earthly security at times. See, comfort and affluence, and these are the two things really that these two men had as issues. The first one wanted comfort And Jesus said, you don't know what you're talking about. If you think you're going to follow me anywhere, you're not going to be able to because you like comfort too much. It's interesting about Jesus. He knows 
He knows. We can fool other people, but God knows about us. And you think about it in the Gospels. Jesus didn't entrust himself to man. Why? Because he knew what was in man. He didn't trust man because man wasn't trustworthy. Only God is truly faithful. Comfort and affluence can hinder us from truly following if we make them our first priority. They don't have to hinder us, but they can hinder us if they become our first priority. The second man wanted his inheritance money more than he wanted Jesus. Jesus wouldn't have said no if the guy said, I want to follow you, and and by the way, on a secondary note, I need to go and fulfill some of my family duties. What's the problem with that? The problem was that it became first for him. So Jesus tells that scribe, that first man, you want what I have? Be prepared to have no place to put your head. No soft, comfy pillow on which to put your head every night. There will be hardship. There will be rejection. There will be Isaiah 53 life for you if you follow me. To the second, he says, find your security in me, not your inheritance. By the way, that second man who put his financial security over Jesus probably didn't care about his dad as much as it sounds. His financial future was his first concern. How hard we toil for riches that, that, that are wasting away and spoil that will burn someday. How foolish to set our hopes on things that are destined to destruction. Destined to waste away. How foolish we are to put other things over God. Tertullian told the Romans why Christians could not treat the emperor as God and they were expected to in those days he said this never will I call the emperor God because it is not in me to be guilty of falsehood and because I dare not turn him to ridicule let him think it enough to bear the name of emperor to call him God is to rob God of his title see whenever a person or an object however precious becomes first, that person or thing becomes deified, becomes God in our life, treated as God, and deification by, by definition belongs only to God. See, Jesus is exposing this would-be disciple's secret rebellion, the loss of first love. Those who do so are instructed to be zealous and repent. Jesus is, is warning the overeager of the commitment he requires of his people and challenging those who made him too low a priority. Get their priorities straight. Both men put other things in the way of Jesus. Both things let other things get in the way. John Piper says, When humans forsake their maker and love other things more, they become like the things they love. Small, insignificant, weightless, inconsequential, and God-diminishing. C.S. Lewis said, the almost impossible thing is to hand over your whole self. All your wishes and precautions to Christ. Until you have given up yourself to him, Lewis says, you will not have a real self. The cost of following Jesus is everything. The cost of following Jesus is your life. It's your life. Now what happens is that Jesus also points out the rules to the second man. By the way, other people were listening in. There was a big crowd around them. That's why they were going into a boat to get away from the crowd. But before they got into the boat, these two men come up and other people are listening in. Other people heard that it was going to cost everything. Other people heard that the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. And other people heard what he said to the second man. Follow me and allow the dead to bury the dead. See, the rules of following Jesus are this. And once again, very simple. The rules are, you don't make the rules. The rules are, you don't stipulate the terms. He calls the shots. He calls the plays. He stipulates the terms. 
See, Jesus will not be priority two or three or 54. His rightful place is first place, preeminent, of first importance. To hear some people explain what it means to follow Jesus nowadays, it just makes you wonder. To hear some people explain about following Jesus, you'd think that it was only for the extra committed Christians. Only those who want to go deeper in the Christian life. That there's like all these levels of following that are available to us as we look at the smorgasbord of following Jesus. It's kind of like a... Uh, a capital campaign and fundraising and, and, and you just you, you, can, you, can, you can get in at any level you want. Do you want full commitment? That will be the ambassador level, by the way. The ambassador level. And it will cost you, you know, a million bucks. Oh, uh, you want to be less committed? That will be the associate level. It will cost you a little bit less. Oh, you just want to hang out and decide later. That's the freeloader level. That won't cost you anything. And you're in charge of that level. You're in charge. It won't cost you a thing. And, and, and oh, there's, but wait, there's more. You can live any way you want at the free level level. You're in charge. Nothing needs to change in your life either. You can just say you're a follower, but you don't have to live it. Oh, no. And by the way, God's okay with that. No, he's not. God is not okay with that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it cheap grace. Really not grace at all. We're part of Grace Church. We should know what grace is. Downplaying the gospel message, by the way, trying to make it look less demanding or even not demanding at all, is lying. Downplaying the gospel message, trying to make it look less demanding or not demanding at all, puts us in danger of being guilty of twisting the gospel message and deceiving ourselves, and not just ourselves, but our families and anyone else that we share our homemade gospel with. This little brew that we concoct, and it poisons people. Michael Horton Put it this way, the American church today is obsessed with being practical, relevant, successful, and well-liked. As a result, we've caved to the norms and values of the contemporary culture and relegated the gospel of Jesus Christ to the dustbin. One writer said this, some of the most popular preaching in America presents a message of positive thinking. The alternative gospel of many foregoes the cross and tells us just to do our best. This is pure legalism of the worst kind. There is no freedom in that. Legalism light, by the way, is still legalism. R.C. Sproul says, the good news of the gospel has been replaced with the good advice about what we can do for God. The proclamation of Christ and Him crucified has been replaced with an easy listening legalism of do more and try harder. That's a trap. Following Jesus is not casual. That's a lie. It is demanding. It is hard. Here's what Jesus said. I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves which, by the way, are dangerous, scary. They're wolves. They got sharp teeth. I send you out in the midst of sheep, a sheep in the midst of wolves. Here's what else Jesus said. You will be hated by all people because of me. And we want to be popular. Jesus said they will make you outcasts. Paul said to Timothy that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 See, it's not a game. It's heaven and hell. 
It is not one option among many equals. It's the primary thing. And so what should those who follow Jesus do? Matthew 16, 24 is a good place to look. Jesus said, if you want to come after me, here's what you need to do. If anyone would come after me, Jesus said to his disciples, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's very interesting when we think about this whole idea of denying self, taking up our cross and following Jesus. We focus on the whole cross thing. What's the cross? It's my cross I got to bear. What's the cross? And, and, uh, and what's that going to look like in my life as I follow Jesus? But the part we ignore is the deny yourself part. Let me tell you what it means. It means you you get so sick of yourself and your own sinfulness, you, you reject yourself. You repudiate yourself. You disown yourself. That's what it means. That's what deny yourself means. Ooh, that doesn't sound very nice to yourself. It doesn't sound very self, I don't know, whatever you want to say. It doesn't sound like it. it doesn't sound very self-coddling. <laughs> doesn't sound very self, you know, I don't know, what's the words? Oh, there's all these words, but it doesn't sound like it, does it? Oh, it sounds really, really harsh. Ooh, what did, why would Jesus say that? Well, because it's the way that leads to life. That's all. Those who follow must deny themselves, repudiate themselves, reject themselves, disown themselves, and follow Jesus. See, Jesus reorients your whole life. Jesus changes your identity. Like the witness protection program kind of thing. But you still look the same. But you're a whole different person. And guess what? You don't have to make it happen. You don't have to try really, really hard and really, really all the time to make yourself be a believer in Jesus and a follower of Christ. You get into the word. You you fellowship with God and his people because we're called not to just me and Jesus, but me and Jesus in community with other people that are with Jesus. And you, and you get into the word and you, and you seek after God and you see what he says and, and, and when lo and behold, your life changes. Things get different. Not following looks free and leads to slavery and death. Following is hard and leads to life because it's based on grace and it rests on God, not us. The gospel of the grace of God in Christ is what we need to grasp. The gospel of the grace of God in Christ is that Jesus, for God's glory and our good, substituted himself for us. He put himself in our place, took upon himself our sin, took upon himself our shame so that we might live. Romans 5 and verse 6 says that while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. The gospel in the nutshell. And and that gospel of the grace of God in Christ calls us to act now. Not in 20 or 30 years. Not later. Not even in a year. Now is the day of salvation. And we sign on his terms. He writes the contract. And and those terms are simple. And, And the terms are all spelled out. You can get the large print edition. By the way, and they cover everything. Nothing has been overlooked. It it goes like this, and it's so simple. He leads, we follow. Let Let me say that again. He leads, we follow, and trust without reservation. It goes like this. He speaks, we listen, and we obey without question. It's simple. And he expects us to count the cost of following and not following. What will it cost you either way? He says to the second man in verse 22, follow me. Now, that doesn't mean that the second man was preferred over the first. 
Like he's somehow a better candidate, so we're going we're gonna to take him. What this means is that at that point, he was not following and he was not planning to follow Jesus. He didn't want to. So Jesus is calling him to faith and repentance. That's what you're supposed to do with unbelievers. You're not supposed to get them in the door and then bait and switch them. You're supposed to tell them the truth. The truth is the most loving thing you can, you can tell. With unbelievers, you're supposed to do what you do with everybody. Make them feel as welcomed and as loved as you can. Treat them well. They're people made in God's image. But tell them the truth. Don't soft pedal it. Don't give them another version that you made up in the basement. Give them the one that comes from the Bible. Follow me doesn't mean casual. Follow me doesn't mean maybe. Follow doesn't mean later. Follow me doesn't mean someday. Follow me doesn't mean if I feel like it. It means get going. Get going. And here's the thing. This is the good news of it too. The backwash of the gospel is always good news. And it's this. A true knowledge of God will lead will lead 100% by the way to a truly changed life a true knowledge of God will lead to a truly changed life and you can't help it because the Holy Spirit's in your life and the Holy Spirit's going to help you understand the Bible and you're going to read stuff and you're like wow I read it before but I didn't get it I get it now it's because the Holy Spirit helps you understand and you pray and you talk to God and, and you share your story with other people about what, what God did because of his grace. He said, I didn't deserve it, but I got it. And so can you. But a true knowledge of God will lead to a truly changed life. The life will change. 100%, it will change. By the way, in the early church, there were expectations. There were expectations in the early church. You want to be a part of us? There are expectations. Acts 2, 42. What'd they do? Well, they devoted themselves. Devoted is a strong word. It means they did that. They operated in that realm all the time. What'd they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, to fellowship. They had all things in common. There were beliefs they all held. There were creeds that they knew. They were identified as members of the church. You knew who was in and who was out because there was a huge contrast between the world and the church. There was a body of beliefs that you would, that you would agree to. You had each other's backs. You know, at Grace Church, there's expectations. We need to be more clear about what those are. But you can look in your bulletin and you can see that we've got a mission, vision, and values, and those aren't just pretty words on a piece of paper. Over the years, they have been, they have been put down so that we know where we're going as a church. We want to worship God and build up believers and reach others for Christ. That we want to become a worshiping body of biblically equipped believers who effectively reach our world for Christ through purposeful relationships. Which means you rub elbows with people who don't know Jesus yet. It means you're out there in the realms that you operate. You know, you're going somewhere tomorrow that I don't have security clearance to get into. I don't have the badge. I don't have the title. But you do. And you're going there. And that, that's part of following Jesus. There's an expectation that if Grace Church is, is home to you, that you would, first and foremost, connect with God by faith in Christ. We don't want you to come here for 20 years and go, I still don't know about that Jesus thing. You know, I don't know. Now, we can't make you become a Christian. Salvation is a sovereign act of God. But we will call you to faith and repentance, and we will love you, and we will care for you, and we will be there for you, and we will lay our lives down for you, and we will call you to faith and repentance if you don't know Jesus. If you do know Jesus, you'll be called to trust and obedience. Trust and obey. We want you to connect with God in 
in Christ by faith, and then that's not all, but live as part of God's family. That's the expectation. When you become a Christian, it's not just you and Jesus. You've got brothers and sisters. And so our expectation is that you would live as God's family, that we would live as God's family, that we would know each other. You're like, well, I'm, I'm shy. Well, you need to walk across the room. You need to start a discussion with someone. Oh, I can't do that. I'm just waiting for everyone else to come. It's not one-sided. It's relationships. When you're in a family, you just get to know each other. Everyone inside families don't all like each other, by the way, but you love each other, and you got each other's back. So we expect you to live as part of God's family, not a lone ranger, not going independent. There are no independent contractor Christians. We are called to community. So we call you to identify with us. You know, this church is a bit over 40 years old. We're a relatively young church. We haven't been around that long. But a long time ago, this, this, the leadership of this church said, we're going to have a membership so we can identify who's in and who's out, who, who knows Christ and, and who's linked with us in a common mission. So, so we have a membership, and if you're a part of Grace Church and this is your home church, you, have to, you need to join. If you haven't joined yet, you need to join the church. Become a member. Link up with us. I was like, oh, no, no. Nowadays, we just want to go here and there and everywhere. Well, that's kind of hard to be a family when you're here and there and everywhere, isn't it? You got to know people. You got to get to know people. We expect that you get into a group. Oh, but I'm, you know, I'm not a people person. Well, you're a people. <laughs> and there are other people in the church. And people need each other. People need people, you know, all that stuff. So you need to get in a group. And you know what else you need to do? What we expect you to do? Go out and serve. That place you're going tomorrow that I can't go. I'm not invited. They'd stop me at the door, but not you. They welcome you in. You go there as an ambassador of Christ. Not on the ambassador level. The Bible ambassador for Christ. Let's bring this plane in for a landing, shall we? We... At, at, at Grace Church are committed to call believers to trust and obedience and we are called to we are committed to call unbelievers to repentance and faith and and in that context we are committed to purposeful relationships loving one another with grace and truth all people who come through these doors all people who call this church home but Jesus gets to the evidence by way of, of inference here in terms of these two, these two ideas of the cost and, and, and the rules of following. But the evidence, and it didn't happen for these two men. It's sad, but it did not happen for these two men. It was a, it's a, here's the evidence of following Jesus. A loving, yielded heart that is willing to do whatever, whenever, however, whatever Jesus says. <laughs> Whatever he says, whatever he chooses, it's, it's the idea of being yielded. It's the idea of putting no confidence in the flesh. It's the idea of having a true sense of our own weakness. It's the idea of God's grace and not our ability. It's the idea of being trust, trusting in the Holy Spirit moment to moment. George Barna found out that, um, and he surveyed a lot of thousands of people. He found out that only 9% of born-again Christians have a biblical worldview. What does that mean? It means that only 9% of those who say, I'm a Christian and I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a disciple of Christ, actually live on a daily basis according to what the Bible says. Wow. John Piper said, wimpy worldviews make wimpy Christians. And wimpy Christians won't survive the days ahead. Those who will be left standing are those who have built their houses on the rock of great objective truth with Jesus Christ as the origin, center, and goal of it all. John Stott said the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where only we deserve to be. You know, so many have been influenced by this idea that it's just within us. The power is within you and all that garbage. 
uh, find the power within you and all that. That's pagan lies, by the way. Pagan lies for many people trump gospel truth. It obscures gospel truth. And God becomes an afterthought. God becomes even a scapegoat for all their problems. Well, isn't it ironic that Jesus allowed himself to become a scapegoat for us so that we might go free? Isn't it ironic that Jesus is our truly faithful leader? That Jesus is extremely interested in us, but we are not the main focal point? He is. That everything about him is remarkable, that he is holy, that he is just, that he is righteous, that he is loving, that he is kind, that he is grace incarnate. He didn't mince words with the two men that came to him that day. He didn't rail on them. He just spoke clearly, firmly, lovingly, without excuse. It's the most loving and graceful thing to do. Truth incarnate told the truth. Tozier says, Jesus didn't give opinions. He's truth. And Jesus is our faithful leader. He tells us the truth about ourselves. There's so much love in Christ's words to us. C.J. Mahaney says God's love is revealed on the cross, crushing his son with our sin and his righteous wrath against us, revealing his love for sinners like us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you love us and we thank you, Lord, that you work with us and that you challenge us strongly and lovingly. You uphold the dignity of, of people made in your image to reflect your glory so that we would do what you want to please you. And Lord, I pray for all those who hear my voice today that believe in you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help them make sure they believe what the Bible teaches. And be sure they know the gospel story for their own sake and for the sake of those whom they're called to reach. And I know, Lord, there are people here today who feel like they're on their last leg. That one's broken, the other's limping, and they don't feel like they can go on. They don't even have the energy to make rash claims like the first man or excuses like the second. They just need you, Lord Jesus. So, Lord, help us focus on these two words. Follow me. Thank you, Jesus, that you protect us, you provide for us, you lead us, you guide us, you empower us, you carry us. Lord, I pray for those who, who don't believe today that they would come to faith in Christ. They're, they're in danger of dying in their sins, and Lord, we know you love them. And Lord, we pray that you would draw them to yourself. Your, your love's like a magnet, Lord, that you take us who are polar opposites from you and they were diametrically opposed to you and you make us your friends by grace through faith. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.